Do you remember the French resistance in World War II? Nazi Germany had occupied France. They had moved in with um, overwhelming force and firepower. And what did the French do? Well, some of them caved and collaborated. They became uh, joined together with the Nazis. <clears throat> but many of them resisted heroically with guerrilla warfare, with the famous underground operations of, of the French resistance. That's what they were. They were a countercultural, nonconformist operation. And isn't that kind of what Christianity is? Genuine Christianity is a resistance movement, not politically, but spiritually. As Jesus said to his followers, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And this is why, for us, life must be sola scriptura and not sola cultura. That is, the surrounding culture does not set the standards for us as a church, but rather only sacred scripture. In other words, we're not taking our cues from Dubai. But of course, that means we won't appear cool in the eyes of Dubai. Jesus said the world will hate you if you follow him. After all, it hated him, so why would it love you or me? In his book on holiness, Kevin DeYoung wrote, we'll never make progress in holiness if we're waiting for the world to throw a party for our piety. The world is simply not a friend to grace. If you follow Christ, if you do it openly, you will stand out. You will perhaps attract unwanted attention. Uh, Jesus promised as much. It's kind of like the people of Israel entering the promised land. Think about it. Canaan was very much an inhabited place when the people of Israel were on the borders there. There were already in Canaan established societies, cultures, traditions, and gods. So, how would they relate when they were confronted by these different elements of culture? Would they conform to the pattern of Canaan? Or would they resist? And the same goes for you, I think. Do your priorities in life look a lot like the priorities of Dubai generally? I mean in your speech, in your clothing, in your spending habits, in the entertainment that you consume. I'm not saying that we Christians should go out of our way to appear weird to the world, <clears throat> but we are referred to as strangers and aliens, aren't we? There's no virtue in looking gloomy or dressing awkwardly. I'm just saying the ways of this world are not friendly to biblical, faithful Christianity. It's not easy entering Canaan. So how can we live distinctly as a church here in Dubai in the year 2022? By remembering three things. God's people are holy. God's people are chosen, and God's people are secure.
And this is the outline of our sermon this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that God's people are holy, chosen, and secure. Open with me to Deuteronomy 7. Remember where we are here. Uh, The people of Israel are amassed on the plains of Moab, just about to enter the promised land, and Moses is preparing them to confront a new culture. And he is reminding them that God's people are holy. 7 verse 1. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That means you are a people set apart. You are a people distinct from all the surrounding nations. You are uniquely enjoying God's presence among you, showing the very character of God. Remember, In the Old Covenant era, the period before Jesus Christ, God's people were exclusively of the family of Abraham. They were to be a holy nation with different priorities and a unique culture. They were unlike us in the sense that they were a political entity. They had civil regulations. They had their own military. They had geographical boundaries. Their ruler was God himself, so they were a true theocracy whose head was God, and since he was holy and morally pure, well, they were to be the same. So their Sabbath was holy, and their animal sacrifices were holy, and even the high priest. Do you remember that, the turban, the headgear that he wore, and it had the golden plate here, and engraved on the plate, what did it say? Holy to the Lord your God. But it wasn't just the priests. All of God's people were designated as holy. And there they were, entering a promised land defiled by all these pagan nations mentioned in verse 1, you know, the Hittites and the Girgashites. Well, they were worshipers of other gods. Now, people today might say, well, how nice, there was religious diversity there. That's adding to our appreciation of human cultures. But the Bible simply disagrees on that point. God had promised Abraham centuries before that when the sins of the Canaanite people reached their full measure and became intolerable to God, then he would send in the family of Abraham as an executionary force. So in light of who they were, they were now called to take action. Verse 2, 
And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And so we face again the uncomfortable truth that for a unique period of salvation history, God's people were an executionary force. Remember, these seven nations in Canaan were, uh, they were in open rebellion against God. They were deserving of eternal punishment. So what's going on here is not ethnic cleansing. It wasn't racial superiority. It was divine judgment on them because of their sin. Israel, therefore, would cleanse the land of ritual contamination. Now, in no other place does the Bible command a holy war of this kind. These verses cannot be used today to justify any kind of land operation. This was unrepeatable. No modern nation today, including Israel, is in a unique covenantal relationship with God. No, these events were a unique turning point in salvation history. Now, critics will tell you, well, this is simply racism. It was just genocide. See, they even outlawed intermarriage. Look at verse 3. They point to verse 3 as being racist. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your son. But there's one problem with that false allegation. Mixed marriages were condemned, but not on racial grounds, on religious grounds. God is not saying that intermarriage with other races is sin. In fact, there are plenty of other examples in the Bible where there were interracial marriages and they were commended. What is the concern here? God is protecting His people from idolatry. Look at verse 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And we know that's true. We know that marrying a foreign husband meant you took his gods into your home. And we remember the devastation that was the result of Solomon disastrously marrying women from other religions in 1 Kings. So, does this say anything to us today? I think it does. I think what it says to us today is, don't be unequally yoked with non-believers. Right? You, you single folk. Marry only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. It doesn't matter if you think that you're in love with another person or if you genuinely do love another person. Seek first the kingdom of God. Follow Christ first. Allow Him to be first in your affections. I don't have time to dwell here, but... Uh, if you have questions about this, talk to one of the elders after, after church. Talk with a, a seasoned believer in Christ. God's concern was that they would be spiritually contaminated. So what He called them to do was to destroy all the religious furniture in their new land. Look at verse 5. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down the altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim. Those are poles that were used for worship and burn their carved images with fire. 
So it's not like God was playing favorites with Israel. It's not like he was saying, you are the good people and therefore you get to execute judgment against the bad people. No. What would happen if they intermarried? What would happen if they adopted the pagan gods? Well, look at the end of verse 4. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Or look down at the last verse of the chapter, verse 26. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. In other words, God was saying to them, destroy or be destroyed. Why must they act with such severity? Because you are a people holy to the Lord your God. They were not urged to become holy. They were told they already are holy. They already are a people set apart. R.E. Clement said Israel was commanded to keep the law because it was a holy people, not because they hoped to become one. Israel's holiness was an act of God, not an act of man. So he was calling them to be what they already were. And the same goes for us today. Brothers and sisters, what does the Apostle Paul call most of the churches to whom he's writing? He calls them saints. Not just some of them. Not just the one who had made, ones who had made more spiritual progress. All of them he addresses as saints. That is, holy ones. All the members of the congregation. And that's who we are. And we're called to fight as well. But how do we fight? And whom? The Apostle Paul said, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our fight is against the devil, the enemy of our souls, and our fight is against the allurement of the world, what the Bible describes as a dazzling, prostitute, fashionable, luxurious on the outside, but murderous and decaying on the inside, actually a hollow hag the world is, and yet we're tempted to be friends with the world. We're tempted to intermarry. We enjoy it. We hang out together. We share the same interests. You know what it's like to be friends with the world. You spend time together. You begin to speak the same way. You start to dress the same way. You enjoy the same values and dreams, and for a while it may seem fun. It may even be satisfying but for how long? Because James said, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. And do you want this God to be your enemy? So we must fight the devil and the world and even the flesh, the sinful nature in us that resonates with these things, that wants to go out in alliance with the world. The New Testament says, we are a holy nation. We are the fulfillment of the Old Testament people of Israel. Set apart, especially enjoying God's presence, even among us this morning. Christ is in our midst by His Spirit. So we must show God's character to the world. That's why we should look different from Dubai. Different priorities. A unique culture. This is why we as a church are not fundamentally Filipino or West African, or Arab. No, 
we have adopted a new culture that transcends all the other similarities that we might have with people from our home country. Our culture is one of the gospel, one of holiness. And this is why we take our witness so seriously in this church. We exercise biblical church membership as new people come in among us and covenant with us and publicly identify with the church. So even tonight in our members meeting, we will consider eight or nine new folk coming in and we will put our stamp of approval on them and say, yes, by all appearances, these people bear true witness to the gospel of Christ. Taking holiness seriously means we follow Jesus, even in sometimes applying corrective discipline in the life of our church. Sometimes we privately correct one another in conversation. Other times, on unusual occasions, we even exclude people from the Lord's table, not merely for sin, because we're all sinners, we all stumble in sin, but for serious, unrepentant sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, I know some people say, well, that's not loving to exclude someone from the church. But let me ask you this. Are you more loving than Jesus? Because he's the one who instructed us to do this. Are you more loving than the Apostle Paul? So our lives must look different. We must be a holy people, set apart, unique. Now, the world will call that legalistic or judgmental. But in truth, it is loving and necessary. We're not a perfect people by any means, but we're to be a holy people. And secondly, we are a chosen people. In other words, the church is God's treasured possession, but why? What is it about us that resulted in our status being so? Well, look at verse 6. Look at the second half of verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You know how a husband loves his wife in a way that is unique, a way that is uh, special and different from all the other women in the church? Because he, he is her husband. They are in special covenant relationship. Well, that's how the Lord loved Israel, in a covenantal love, distinguishing her from all of those other nations, the Girgashites and the the Hittites and the, the Egyptians. He chose her, verse 6, to be a treasured possession. In the ancient Near East, private property rights were not really a thing. The king owned everything. And yet, out of his total holdings in the society, he would reserve a private stock of choice items which were called a treasured possession. Well, this is what God had redeemed Israel to be. Out of all of the nations that He had created, He designated them. He chose them specifically that they would take His name upon Himself. 
Now, what reason did they have to boast in their status? Could they rightly be proud of their close relationship with God? If it wasn't that they were more attractive than the other nations, it wasn't that they were militarily more powerful than the other nations, well, what was it that caused God to choose them? Look at verse 7. It says, the Lord set His love on you. Then look at verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you. I'm interested by the interaction between verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, the Lord set His love on you. Why? Because verse 8, the Lord loves you. He loves you because He loved you. It is not based on anything in them, but everything in Him. Now, we don't love people like that generally. We love people because of something in them. Like, well, maybe he can do something for me. Or maybe he has a wonderful personality. Or maybe she is beautiful or she's socially connected. Something, not God. God is so different from us in this. His love is not merely undeserved, it's contrary to what we deserve. J.I. Packer said, God loves creatures who have become unlovely and one would have thought unlovable. But no, God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this is the amazing love of God. Now, isn't it true that God loves all the world? Well, yes, that's true in the sense that He causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall upon all without exception. But God's love, you have to remember, is a multifaceted love. He also has a special, particular love for the elect, the chosen people. So the historically elect people of Israel were a foreshadowing of the eternally elect people of Christ. They're like a parable of the eternally elect. So God's choice of Israel was a picture of His choice eternally of the people of Christ. And this is what we saw in Romans 9, which Emeka read for us earlier, where God chose one individual over another. Now turn back with me to Romans 9. Let me just show you something there. Because Romans 9 is talking about election too. Look at Romans 9. He chose Jacob over Esau. But why? Look at Romans 9, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So the choice took place before they were even born irrespective of anything they ever did. Why? Because of God's purpose and election. That no one might boast. That it might be all of Him who calls. Now look at verse 16. Romans 9, 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God 
who has mercy. Of course, none of us deserves the mercy of God. Neither Jacob nor Esau. Neither you nor me. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The marvelous thing isn't that God doesn't save everybody. It's that God saves anybody. Well, this is what the word election means. Election means that before the world was even created, before we had done anything either good or bad, God chose some individuals because of His sovereign grace only to be reconciled, to be with Him forever. Now, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, do you see what this means for you? This is something that I think is explosive. This means anybody can be saved. Wrongdoers, adulterers, prideful people, and angry people. The door of God's mercy has been opened wide through the Lord Jesus Christ to the very worst sinners. The devil's castaways can be accepted in Christ. Nothing you could have done could possibly interfere with the eternal electing purposes of God. And here is why. Jesus came into this world to save sinners. He took on flesh. The eternal creator of the universe came in, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, chose to die on the cross, endured a divine curse in the place of anyone who would turn and trust in Him, bore the punishment of God in the place of wrongdoers and lawbreakers, and was dead and buried, and then God raised Him up in victory on the third day. And if you will place your faith in Him, you will be saved. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Is there anyone here today who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ? Friend, can you even construct in your own mind a more beautiful, a more wonderful Savior than Him? Turn from your sin. Place your faith in Christ. Yield to Christ and you'll be reconciled with God. Do you know why so many churches today seem to be so weak? I think it's this. Because people are no longer amazed by grace. Grace is no longer amazing because people think, well, of course God loves me. I'm basically lovable. You see, in our age of self-esteem, we have been taught in HR, in our schools, in other public institutions, even in our churches, to think of ourselves in this way. I'm inherently lovable, and therefore it makes sense that God would choose me. Furthermore, we're taught often that this doctrine of individual divine eternal election is not what it says in Romans 9. We're taught that, no, it must turn finally on something I do, something innate in me. But that's simply what Paul is arguing against in Romans 9.16. It is not because of him who wills or runs, but of God who has mercy. If you think, well, there's something in me that sort of sparked God's curiosity, 
well, then you haven't really grasped the depth of the amazingness of God's grace. Michael Horton wrote, knowing that God has chosen us reminds us that we are loved, though not lovely. Chosen, even though not necessarily choice in the eyes of others, we are accepted, but not because we're acceptable ourselves, only in Christ. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 verse 4, look this verse up later today, Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. So if somebody asked you, what is the ultimate factor, whether anyone is saved, what would you say? Look at Romans 8 verse 30. Romans 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The ultimate reason why anybody's saved is because he predestined it. He chose us before the creation of the world, irrespective of anything we could ever possibly have contributed. This is the sovereign grace of God. Now, there are many questions about this that I wish I could answer but uh, I'll just leave it to you to pick up a copy of R.C. Sproul's Chosen by God. Uh, there are some copies at the book, book stall at the back. This is one of the most excellent treatments of this subject. It will clarify things in an excellent way. And if you wonder, well, do we, do we still have the necessity of believing in the gospel? Well, the answer is yes. And furthermore, in Romans 10, said, Paul says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But who are those all who will call on the name of the Lord? Well, J.I. Packer deals with that in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, this is one of the classics of the 20th century. I commend both of these books to you, J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul on the bookstall at the back. I'm not denying human responsibility for a moment. I'm just saying this. When they come and ask you, why did you come to faith in Christ and your cousin did not? Or your friend did not? What will you say? Charles Spurgeon recalled, One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How came I to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that He was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire that this will be my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. And if you're a Christian here this morning, isn't that true of you too? You and I were the least likely candidates to be chosen. The prime candidates of the world were passed over. You know, the noble, 
the wise, the well-connected, those of noble birth. No. God chose what was foolish in the eyes of the world in order to shame the wise so that no human might boast. You didn't qualify for his love, did you, Christian? And yet he loved you. And he did so with a special, individual, electing love before the creation of the world. And if that's true, he'll never let you go. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, from start to finish, salvation is the Lord's work. So how can we look down on others who maybe we think we're better than them? How can we possibly write off other people as if they have no hope? You know, there was one time when uh, he was asked if he ever despaired that a certain person could be saved, and John Newton replied like this, I never did despair since God saved me. Friends, this is the amazing love of God, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? So, did God love Israel? Yes. But why did he? Well, negatively, not because of anything in them, but positively, because God had promised to bless Abraham and to use him to be a blessing to all the nations. That's why he rescued them out of slavery in order that he might be with them in a purified promised land where they could worship God according to his character. That's Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Look with me at Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And here we see love and loyalty going together because it talks about following the commandments of God. So there's love and there's loyalty. Jesus combined these two in John 15 when he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. But don't forget the order. The order is not that they obeyed the commandments and so God chose them. It's the opposite. God chose them, and therefore, they were to obey His commandments. And that's how God has always worked with His people. And if they lived in obedience, the blessings would flow. That's verse 12. Deuteronomy 7, verse 12. Think carefully about these verses. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in a land that He swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, and there shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. So blessings would flow from obedience. Now, what do you think the Pentecostal prosperity preachers do with these verses? Well, they say we're simply being biblical when we read these verses. If you obey, He will love you. He will multiply you. He will fill you with grain and wine and 
the fruit of the womb and oil, and you will be blessed above all nations. They say God wills the financial prosperity of his people now, in this age, and the physical health of his people too. And therefore, if you are poor, and if you are physically sick, if you are afflicted, like the apostles were, then it must be a problem with you. You must not have adequate faith. You must living, be living a Satan-defeated life. Look at verse 15. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness, and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which, he knew, which you knew, will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all those who hate you. The prosperity gospel interprets these verses as though we are the people of Israel. Their mistake is a covenantal mistake, as though there was nothing unique about the old covenant people of God living in a physical promised land where the kingdom of God was prefigured in a physical way. Are all of the Old Testament promises yes and amen to Christians? Yes, but not in the way that the prosperity preachers think they are. Walt Kaiser observed, prosperity teachers tend to equate your father knows what you need before you ask with everything our little old heart wants. But there's a difference between the Lord's spiritual promises and his physical promises. Think carefully with me on this. His spiritual promises are something that we enjoy now in and through our union with Christ and the Spirit of Christ. All other promises, I mean the ones related to healing the sick, the ones related to material provision, those will be enjoyed ultimately in a new cosmos when Jesus Christ comes, in a new earth. It's just as Peter, Peter wrote about an inheritance which would never, poil, never spoil or perish or fade, but where was it? kept in heaven for you. Jesus said, do not lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. Well, where do we lay up treasure? In heaven. There are tremendous treasures promised, but only at the consummation, at the return of Christ, at the end of all times. So Jason Derushi wrote of prosperity teachers, they're wrong not because they assert that Old Covenant promises apply to Christians, but because, and get this, they're wanting to bring the future into the present too quickly. They're wanting to bring the future into the present too quickly. All of these promises of healing and prosperity and wine and oil will be realized ultimately in a new heaven and a new earth, but until then we still wrestle with sin and sickness with death and disappointment. Friends, this world is not our home. In the 1600s, Samuel Rutherford wrote to an elderly lady whose husband of many years had died, and she was grieving his loss. And he, he wrote to her, this world is not a field where your happiness grows. It is up above, where there are a great multitude which no man can number of all nations and kindreds. What you could never get here you shall find there. And that's guaranteed because you've been chosen. So God's people are holy and they are chosen. And then finally, 
And more briefly, God's people are secure. And so, why should you fear? Verse 17. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are now afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. You know, the Lord is glorified when we trust Him, when we rely upon Him. And that's easy to do when things are going well in life. But what about when things are not going well? I mean, what about when you're confronted with a difficulty that is beyond your ability to handle? Wouldn't it be a natural thing, for example, if this morning in Ukraine, people are fearful because of the 130,000 Russian soldiers on the border to the north in Ukraine? Wouldn't that just be normal to fear? But God commanded Israel in verse 18, you shall not be afraid. Or verse 21, you shall not be in dread of them. So faith in God is simply not natural. And we see three reasons why. Against all odds, these people were secure, even though they were going into a new culture with superior, sophisticated firepower. Here are the three reasons, very briefly. Number one, because God is mighty. He is mighty. He had shown that on the stage of history in the Exodus, when he delivered the people out of Egypt, the amazing thing was that they could, they could somehow forget. Look at verse 18. You shall not be afraid of them. Well, what's the antidote for fear? But you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. Remembering is the antidote to fear. He had devastated the preeminent power on the planet in the Exodus. Through signs and wonders, God had dismantled them. He had disintegrated them. And was Israel responsible for that? No, God had done it all with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He did it once. He will do it again. That's what he's saying. He would even send hornets into the promised land, verse 20. Now, whether those are literal hornets or that's some metaphor, I don't know, but there's a sweet irony here because in the previous generation... The fathers of these people who were on on the border, remember they had been chased by a swarm of bees when they had uh, disobeyed God at Kadesh. But here the reverse was happening. Now the hornets were going after the enemy. Here is a mighty God. We must remember, secondly, that God is ever-present and He will never leave you. Verse 21. You shall not be in dread of them. Why not? For the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. This God was different from the gods in Canaan. The pagan gods were either distant and unconcerned, or they were localized into a shrine or an idol. 
But this God was neither of those. He was over all as the sovereign creator and Lord, transcendent. Verse 21, a great and awesome God. But at the same time, he was very close to them. The reason they should not be afraid was because God is in your midst. And this is the great promise that Christians have held on to for years. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And friends, this means if you know Jesus Christ, your life is never out of control because He is there with you, holding your hand in the midst of it, no matter how discouraging, no matter how frantic or crazy it may seem. Fear strikes when we look away from God and toward ourselves. But God says, I am with you. I will help you. And then thirdly, we see here in a beautiful way, we see that he is a sovereign God. Even in the finer details of how they would invade the promised land, it couldn't be done all at once. Did you notice that in verse 22? The Lord your God will clear away all these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. Moses didn't want these people to think that they were the military conquerors so that they might boast before God. You see, it's the Lord who would give them over. It's the Lord who would throw them into confusion. But only gradually would he allow them to take the land. And God has his purposes even in the order and the pace at which he fulfilled his promises. I mean, haven't you many times been impatient with God? when you've been praying again and again and he's not answering your prayer? Well, maybe God's timing is better than yours. How many years did it take for William Carey, the great father of modern missions, when he went to India to see his first convert? Seven years. How many years did it take William Wilberforce, whose anti-slavery campaign eventually successfully abolished the slave trade in the U.K.? 20 years. After three full years of ministry in Sharjah, our brother Anand Samuel, who was once a pastor of this church, wrote to the UCCD elders and he said this, while I would like to see lightning bolts of monumental change, the Lord shows me time and time again that he works in ways that are quiet, often imperceptible and incremental. Isn't it possible that he's doing that in your life. That the Lord is working imperceptibly, incrementally, and advancing His good purposes in ways that you don't even recognize. I mean, what situation are you facing now in your life with insurmountable odds, and you cannot see your way through it? Moses knew the dangers that confronted these people. He knew what lay ahead of them in the promised land. Raymond Brown said, a country littered with hilltop shrines to false gods, sickeningly corrupt, immoral religious practices, heathen neighbors with vastly different ethical standards. And so Moses was warning them, just like 1 John warns you and me, do not love the world or anything in the world. We've seen that the ways of this world are not friendly to 
faithful Christianity. So if you tell your job interviewer that you are serious about following Jesus, and therefore you need to have Sunday off, and as a result, you get passed over for your job, don't expect the world to applaud you. The world will ridicule you. And if you avoid foul language and turn off the TV and walk out of a movie because it's obscene, all these things will get you derision from the, the world, not approval. If you're a believer who wants to remain sexually pure, well, the world's not going to encourage you in that. It will make fun of you. It's not easy entering Canaan. So, how can we live distinctly here in Dubai as God's people? By remembering. God's people are holy. God's people are chosen. God's people are secure. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the infinite gift of Christ. We thank you that you chose us in him even before the world was created, that we might be holy and blameless in your sight, that even though we are lost sinners, yet in Christ we have been found. And we celebrate that. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored in our celebration of that truth each time we gather. And that even as we sing this closing song, Christ would be honored, that he would be upheld in our minds and hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.